you know, adjustability is what we're really talking about when we talk about timing. So, uh, you know, are you on time? Can you adjust your timing to barrel a baseball when your body is off? So I think the first thing is we have to create an environment that demands it. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. On today's show, I welcome Jeff Leach, Manager of Hitting at Axpat. And on the show, Jeff shares his wealth of experience as a hitting coach for players as young as eight years old, all the way up to the professional level. And Jeff offers tips on various methods of training, swing timing, when players should shut down the swing, and how to help players find solutions to the problems that they have with their swings. You're gonna love this episode. And here is Jeff Leach. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I just want to say thank you for yourself and Axe being a sponsor for our show this this past month. And we've gotten a ton of rave reviews about some of the different products that you guys are consistently putting out. And, and I know that we've gotten a lot of good feedback from the show as well. But for our listeners, before we get started about Axe and then obviously some different training stuff that you do, not just with Axe, but just in the off season and, and in season, and you work with a huge variety of players, which is really, really cool. Can you give us a little bit of a short snapshot of yourself, where you came from, and what you're currently doing now? Yeah, so I've been a baseball coach and hitting instructor now for the last 10 years. I'm based in San Antonio, so I was a, as I describe myself, a pretty average player, maybe less than average. I had a speed tool, and I had a fielding tool, and That is what helped me play a little bit longer in the game. I transitioned to coaching after about eight years out of baseball. So once I got out of college, I got a corporate job and, you know, kind of spent seven years kind of finding my way, chasing a paycheck and decided to get back into baseball. And when I did, the gap in baseball really allowed me to see the game differently. I got into golf and golf instruction and coaching was a lot of video and line drawing and biomechanics. And I really took that and applied it to baseball. And so it really opened up a a different world for me as a baseball coach. I wasn't successful as a player, but I could apply successful practices in other sports to the game of baseball. And, And I think that's what helped me kind of grow. So I started coaching and doing private instruction part time and very quickly grew and doing about 1500 lessons a year locally with players from age eight to professional level. And so it, it really was a journey. Now I am the manager hitting for AXBAT. And so, you know, my role is, is really to kind of engage the baseball and softball community and help players really discover the AXE handle and the benefits. Really, I'm, I'm still helping AXE kind of understand how the act handle enhances the mechanics of the swing mm-hmm. for players. So 
I love that, and and we've got the opportunity to meet at On Base U for the first time. Well, no, I actually met yeah. at the ABCA, and then we got to spend some time yep. together at On Base U, and so I knew that you'd be a, a great fit for the show just because you're a guy who is consistently learning, and that's that's exactly what what we're looking for, and that's exactly who I want to befriend because you know you you say you're the you're the five that you hang out with the most, and so the more guys that I can pick their brain like yourself and befriend and text and consistently be asking questions, the the better that I'm going to be. A couple of years ago, you talked about a different system that you had for developing players. And and so I've always been curious as to what that was. And then we, we got, again, we got to talk a little bit a couple weeks ago about how you developed that. And I really, really like that. But you also mentioned that you have an array of kids from, you know, younger kids. So 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, all the way up to pro ball guys. And I want to know, what are exactly are you doing whenever you start? So, like, the first day that they come in, just kind of pick an age group. We'll go, like, teenager, we'll go college, and we can go pro ball if you want. But I just want to know, you know, where do you start with each? And I think you do a little bit of group training, too. Is that correct? Yep. So I've, I've I migrated from a individual lesson. Basically, I was a swing coach, to I, I basically saw the flaws in that model. I wasn't addressing all the different all the different things that a player needs to have access or be exposed to in order to make himself a better baseball player. So that's why I migrated from individual to a group training environment. I could train more players more often with more tools. And I, I saw a lot of growth in my players. So for youth players, and I, I basically group youth guys all the way from eight U um, to about 13. So that, that preteen age group. And for those players, I'm really kind of looking at, you know, what, what is their experience level? You know, what is their motivation level and what is their support system? And so, you know, if you're looking at an eight year old kid, he doesn't have a lot of experience in the game. He may not be motivated at a high level to really train and practice at his craft without being pushed. So that player needs support of a parent to, give him the support telling your kid to go in the backyard and hit balls off a tee when they don't necessarily know whether they love baseball is just not a plan for success. So when I do private training with younger players, I really talk to the dads that a lot of the training that is going to be done to help this player improve is going to be between our sessions. So dad getting out and talking to the kid or working on the tee, reinforcing the things that we're doing in our training environment is really important. With a high school player, it's a little bit different. That player has more motivation to train. So I'm looking first to fill the holes and the gaps in their, in their abilities. And then I'm almost always looking to build a power tool for a high school player. There are a lot of players that can make contact consistently. The thing that I see missing most players at the high school level is the ability to hit the ball for power. If a player does have the ability to hit for power but needs to make contact and they fill that hole or gap in his swing. With a pro player, it's it's really more of a conversation. They already are an elite athlete. Generally speaking, they have elite bat speed. They have body awareness and control. And they just need that one thing to kind of help them get over the hump. I'm not going to do a swing breakdown with a an elite hitter like a college or a pro hitter usually it's 
hey, I, I tend to flare X pitch uh, to the opposite field, or I get blown up inside. I have trouble hitting an inside pitch. So we're going to work on things to refine their movements or refine their, their pattern so they can hit that ball more effectively. That's really what my goal is going to be with a high-level guy. So mm-hmm. so you're saying you give your kids homework? I, I love that idea, and I know that especially when, when – how often do you see them? So the way we do our group training is they come in two or three days a week, and some players, they'll come in more often than that. I kind of leave it up to them. So two days a week is minimum. That's how much I require. Our, our group training sessions are an hour and a half long. So, you know, I, I just felt like when they come in, they need to address several different aspects of training. So they need movement training. They need swing training. They need competition. Mm-hmm. They need to have a dynamic warm-up leading up to all of that. So we're going to try to hit everything we possibly can in an hour-and-a-half session. We're going to include as many tools as possible while doing it. And my philosophy basically is that, you know, hitting is an infinite movement problem, and I need to give them as many solutions to that problem as possible. Right, and it sounds like you're helping them to understand how to solve those problems, not just giving them the answers to them. Yeah, I mean, we're going to give them as many different movement solutions as possible. So that requires that I improve their mobility and I give them stability, that we work on refining their swing movements. I give them several different problems to solve, whether it be fast pitching, slow pitching, inside, outside, directional, uh, what have you. I'm just going to mix it all up for them and... The way I tell them is like, you know, you, you're not designed to succeed in practice. You're designed to fail and figure it out. Go home and cry to your mama kind of thing. Like it, it should not be easy in the training environment. And if it's too easy for them, they're really not learning. Right. And, and we actually had a conversation again at OnBase U and you mentioned that you had several guys that are elite for their age group. And you treat those guys a little bit differently than the guys that are less elite. I guess we could say less elite than their age group and are a little bit behind. And that's always a balancing act between pushing and pulling. And it sounds like that that's something that's really important to you as well. Yeah, I like my guys to train with all level of players. So I'll have college level players training with 13-year-olds. If I have a 13 or 14-year-old that will be a future Division One player he's going to train with some of our elite high school and college players get in that environment and i think that the competition helps them i think that the influence of older players and seeing how they go through their process and training and their devotion to the sport helps younger players uh, kind of bridge the gap from an amateur mindset to more of a professional mindset oh for sure for sure and i think that Sometimes our players are our best teachers, and I, I think that you know the the more again tools that we can give those guys, and the if they can teach it, they obviously know it fairly well. You mentioned that one thing that you really try and help each player gain is power, and I'm I'm assuming that part of that is bat speed. So talk to us about you know your main goals for this upcoming off season. I know we're we're about to get right smack dab in the middle of it. And, you know, what do you, what do you really like to do? What, what are some different drills that you like and how does your approach for your, you know, your systematic approach for developing baseball players, how, what does that look like in the fall? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that every off season for a player should be 
you know, first and foremost about improving the player's tools. So, you know, baseball tools are arm strength, hitting, hitting for power, speed, fielding. And I think the base of that is getting bigger, faster, stronger. So improving the movement quality as well as functional strength for sports, Mm -hmm. I think is critical. Finding a trainer that knows what they're doing that can address movement deficiencies and make sure that the movement quality is improving and not just the overall strength to create imbalances in the system is really critical. As far as drills, I really like to work with drills that require the least amount of verbal reinforcement. So I like to set up constraint drills for players. I like to adjust either the tool or the task for the players so that they have to make the adjustments or they have to move in a certain way. I like to encourage athleticism for hitters and I like to engage players in competition and we measure everything. So I think that if you want to improve a player's tools, give them feedback, let them know whether that tool is improving or not. If it's bat speed, give him a way to measure it with either a sensor or we use hit tracks at the facility as well. So the feedback of that ball was hit with higher exit velocity or with faster bat speed is really, in some cases, the best coach for that player. Mm -hmm. So I set up the environment and the player really enforces it on their own to make the improvements. I've had players that have jumped 20 mile an hour in exit velocity in two months. And that really wasn't the focus of the training. It was simply creating an environment that allowed the player to make their own gains and improvements over time. I love that. And, I, you know, we're always looking for self-teaches and things that, to get the player to feel what we're trying to get them to because feel is real. And if they can feel it, they can, they can obviously fix it, especially in times that, that we're not around. And I, I think that most hitting coaches and most coaches or teachers in general, we're teaching them to make us irrelevant. But you mentioned a couple of different ways or a couple of different things that you do measure, but what are some different tools that you use to measure those things? So like I said, we hit, we have a hit track. So hit tracks is kind of the ultimate way of evaluating whether a player's performing. It gives you your launch angle and your ball exit speed, ball exit speed and exit velocity or max exit velocity is what most players chase. What I'm more interested in is average exit velocity for that player. So we create a goal of having our average exit velocity being within five mile an hour of our max exit velocity. To me, that says that the player is consistent, that they're hitting the ball square. If we have a huge gap in average to max exit velocity, then they're squaring one up well and they're cutting or popping up or making poor contact on the rest of their swings. So I think the reinforcement that there's a ratio that we're chasing is really critical. We use blast sensors. That's a partner of acts. So we like to measure their bat speed. Mm -hmm. I like to look at their time to contact, you know, with hitting it's, it's a short window activity. You have 200 milliseconds from pitch release to the ball crossing the plate or 400 milliseconds, and about half of that 200 milliseconds or less is required for you to swing the bat. So I look for a quick swing that delivers power. I'm going to look for the approach angle of the bat to see whether it's positive or negative. And positive means that the bat is moving slightly up to contact relative to horizontal. A negative approach angle means the bat is moving slightly down to contact. 
And I want my players to have a positive approach angle or slight uppercut that matches the down angle path of the pitch. So in the professional level, big leagues, the ball's coming down between six and 10 degrees on average. And if we can stay close to that range, we'll be pretty consistent striking the ball, or at least that's the goal. Sure, sure. So you've talked a lot about some different things that you guys are looking at. And, you know, I, I just want to know, because something that, that I find interesting is, and something that I've tried to work on myself is, we have some different things that we believe are low-hanging fruit, but we don't want to give them too much. We'd rather give them something that fixes a few of those things than give them one drill for everything that goes wrong. And so one thing that I've been trying to do is trying to figure out which comes first, you know, the chicken or the egg. Is it bat speed or is it in the weight room? And do they come together and... Is it, you know, do we fix bat speed or bat plane first and which one will have the most benefit to the kid depending on the time of year? And there's so many different things and it all depends. But I want to know, where, where do you start looking first? And, you know, that's something that I've been struggling with too is because I think we can all identify, for the most part, what a player is doing wrong. But I think the really, really good coaches in general, no matter the sport or no matter you know, what position they coach or whatever, they're really good at coming up with solutions to those problems rather than just identifying them. And so where do you start? What are you looking for? And then just kind of roll with it from there. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I believe there's kind of just simplifying the swing down. I don't necessarily worry that I do focus on key movements, but, you know, swing plane is important. Swing path, swing sequence and swing timing. If, if those four things are good, the player will succeed. Mm -hmm. So swing path to me is when the ball enters the hitting zone, the first point that the player could make contact with the ball is the barrel still inside the hands. So still close to the shoulder, still inside the hands. If the bat is inside of the hands, working inside to out to contact, I think that player will be successful over time. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that we look at. With younger players, they tend to get disconnected really easily. They are more hand swingers. They don't know how to utilize the bigger muscles. So they tend to swing in to ends where the barrel's inside working across their chest, mm -hmm. or they work out to in where the hands or barrel gets outside of the ball really early in the swing process. Sure. So I usually look for swing path first, and then swing plane is really easy to see on video, whether the bat is working up or down through contact. You can just use an iPhone and slow down the video and see that fairly quickly as long as you're looking for it. So I want the bat to be moving up slightly at contact. Swing sequence. You know, I'm looking for a ground-up sequential sequence. I'm looking for the pelvis to be one of the first movers, followed by the trunk, um, arms and hands, and then the barrel to follow. So I, I think a lot of people look on, on video and it's sometimes difficult to look at specific movement to the pelvis. Somebody will argue that the leg is moving first or the pelvis is moving first or the trunk is all, they're all moving together at the same time. I think that's one of the harder things to interpret and just needs to have a lot of experience looking at video and seeing the results. Swing timing is, I think, the most difficult thing to see on video because you need to see the entire picture. I used to have a great video of Pujols that I filmed from the upper deck at, at MetLife. Mm -hmm. And it was the entire, from pitch release 
to the ball entering the hitting zone to him making contact with it. So, you know, from a timing perspective, I'm looking to see, are they loaded at pitch release? So there's going to be a preset movement with the lower body to get into a, a load at pitch release. At pitch release, are they moving forward, creating some type of separation movement? Are their hands staying back or staying still as their lower body gains ground? And then as the ball enters the zone, do we see movement sequentially from the ground up to contact? I really think that's, that's difficult to do without seeing the whole picture. XBAT has a special offer for our listeners. The XBAT Speed Trainers, powered by Driveline Baseball, are a revolutionary bat speed training system that utilizes a mix of overload and underload weighted training bats to promote bat speed, power, and precision hitting. This month, Axe released their newest training bat, the Axe Long Trainer. The Long Trainer is a 37-inch, 37-ounce training bat that helps high school, college, and pro hitters improve their bat path and increase bat speed. It comes with data-driven training programs from Driveline Baseball for in-season and off-season development. Go to axbat.com and use our code AOTC at checkout to save 10% on your purchase of Axbat training products, including all of the Axbat speed trainers and wood bats. Axbat, your fastest swing starts now. No doubt, no doubt. And again, I'm right there with you. That's probably my favorite view is up top and behind just because you can see everything that's happening. For the most part, I really like the side view, but I really like that as well because you can actually see the ball coming in and you can see hand path. But you mentioned that you got, obviously timing is important because hitting is timing, but are there some different ways that you are training it? Because I'll be honest and I'll be completely upfront in saying that I haven't done a very good job of this in the past. And it's something that I'm really looking forward to doing it earlier because I, for a lot of us, timing is an eight, and at least in guys who, who played a little bit. And it was just something that it's unique to each individual. And I think it's a little bit hard to tell them when to be on time. We can give them some different starting points and we can, t- we can obviously, if we barrel up a ball, you are on time, but I'm, I'm always right. looking for different ways to be able to train it in a team setting or just within the player themselves. So what are some different ways that you do that? Well, I think, that, you know, adjustability is what we're really talking about when we talk about timing. So, uh, you know, are you on time? Can you adjust your timing to barrel a baseball when your body is off? So I think the first thing is we have to create an environment that demands it. So it's if training timing with a player is the least understood aspect of hitting, but there are players that learn to control their timing then it wasn't about what somebody said and it was about the environment that the player was developed in. And if we look at the environment for a lot of players in countries outside the United States, they're, they play a lot of games. They play a lot of competition. They play, and when I say games, I don't mean like structured games. I mean like backyard games and street games using different tools like bottle caps and, you know, whatever they can find in order to create some different skills. And so, like, I think if you vary the task and vary the environment and you vary the goal for the hitter, you can help a player move to better timing without instructing them on how to find timing. So if you change the variables, like the speeds that you're throwing or the distances that you're throwing from, the direction that the ball is coming from, or the environment that the player is in, that's going to automatically cause them to start making slight adjustments. 
So I think that when I'm looking to do that with players, we'll set up a different, maybe it's toss on one side with a heavy ball, toss on the other side with a lighter ball or from greater distance. BP is going to be quick rounds of BP. So three to five pitches per round instead of giving them eight to 10 pitches where they get more time to adjust to the rhythm of the pitcher. We're going to switch the tosser often or the side arm. So right arm versus left arm pitching. So they learn to adjust differently. They see a ball coming for a right-hander. They have less information if they're a right-handed hitter coming to them because the ball is the, the only difference or engagement of the timing is how big is the ball getting as it gets closer to me. With a lefty, they see the ball from a different perspective so they can gauge the timing of that pitch a little differently. And then we're going to adjust the tools for the hitters. So for me, I'm going to use a heavy bat, which is going to force a player to create force more rapidly in their swing. So the timing of that is going to be different than using a lighter bat. I'm going to use a short bat so they have to let the ball travel a little bit more or a long bat so they have to start their swing sooner. Something like that is going to help a player intrinsically find their timing to hit a ball better. And I think adding variability is simply the best best tool. I understand. You also mentioned bat speed earlier. What are some different ways that you try and develop that and help the players with that? I think first is creating a competition around exit velocity or bat speed. If you're simply telling the player that, you know, you want to test, see who has the hardest hit ball in this round, that's going to infuse a little bit more intent behind the swing. I think that using tools like the Axe Speed Trainers, is a really critical uh, tool for every coach to have in their bag. If you have a player using a bat that's too heavy for them, they have to group more of their big muscles in order to create more force. So it's going to naturally over time help develop bat speed. Using a bat that is lighter, like our underload trainer that comes in the speed set, is going to allow the player to move the bat quicker. And over time, it's going to develop faster, quicker muscles. So I think that using tools and infusing that into your training, if you want to gain, if you want your players to hit for power, then you have to tell them it's okay to hit for power and you have to encourage them to try to develop it. If you tell your players that all they need to do is make contact or not to try to do too much, then you're going to limit what they want to do or what they're capable of doing as a coach. Oh, perfect. And another thing that that I've been really trying to be conscious of, especially during the season is and the preseason, is trying to help them to make a decision with every ball that's thrown. And instead of, you know, underhand flips from 20 feet away consistently just to get a, a ton of swings, having them to understand when to swing, when to say no, not to swing, and the difference between the two. Because I, I think a lot of a lot of amateur players are waiting to swing so they're in they're in the no no yes deciding to swing rather than deciding to shut it down with the yes yes no and i think that's that's something that we really worked hard on this past season but also being able to differentiate with spin differentiate with speed and the different tunneling windows but i love the decision making aspect of it and i think that that's that's a it's a really hard thing to measure and to see over time but i think it's something that's obviously vital within the swing, because if we are making bad decisions, it doesn't matter how good our swing is. But how, how do you help, w- help them with deciding 
to shut down the swing. I'm I'm assuming since you said yes, you're in the yes, 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 and yes, yes, no in the box there. But what uh, what are some different ways that you help them to make better decisions within the swing? I don't have a take sign. So for my guys, I really want them to, and we preach it, step into the box, ready to swing for the first pitch going forward. I don't want my guys getting behind in the count. Mm-hmm. Taking a first pitch strike is, I think, one of the, the worst sins in baseball. The only reason to take a pitch is to get yourself a better pitch in that at bat. And so with that mindset, you get a fastball down the middle, there should be no reason for you to take your foot off the gas. So I think just the mindset of we're here to hit is really critical. We teach our players to look for pitches, what they hit best. So we we do a lot of drills where I'm giving them zone awareness or hot zone awareness, I should say. So I'm going to give them pitches up and away, up and in, down and in, down and away. We go through those drills weekly, and they learn which zones they cover best. And so if they know that they struggle, like most players do, up and in or down and away, we're going to try to get them to focus on pitches in the other hot zones that they can handle. Everyone usually can hit the ball down the middle, but can you hit the down and in really well? Maybe you should look for that pitch. I think part of the decision-making process as a hitter is really understanding the opponent's patterns, I don't think that's necessarily taught as much, but if you listen to professional hitters and listen to what they say after at bats, mm-hmm. I think it's really enlightening. So, you know, they understand at the professional level, their opponent's capabilities, their skills, their preferences. They know how many pitches they, the other pitcher has. They know when he throws it. They know how the other pitcher or other team is going to try to get them out. Mm-hmm. They're better at identifying cues from the pitcher, whether a pitcher changes their arm slot or tips the pitches somehow before the pitch goes. And they're anticipating and looking for the opponent's actions to give them a clue of what's coming. And I think anticipating what you're going to get is one of the best ways to make a better decision. So, um, and I think with our practice environment, because we do a lot of competition, there may be a little trash talk going on. We're elevating the emotional stresses uh, that a player has when they hit so that they feel more comfortable in that environment. And when they're more comfortable in the environment, it opens them up sensory-wise to see everything that is happening in the situation where when you're like stressed, when you're stressed, you've got that you know, fight-or-flight response. It narrows your focus. You can't see all of the visual cues in your environment that can help you be a good hitter. So I think that's why they always say, you know, practice like you play and play like you practice. Create the environment you're going to see in the game and practice. Raise the stress levels, raise the energy levels so the player feels more comfortable in the moment when the pressure's on and they can see all the information in front of them to make a better decision. Definitely, definitely. And I, I think we could turn it into a competition. I know that we had a flight scope this past year and being able to see their hot zones in comparison to what they actually thought were their hot zones. And I know that's something that, that is higher tech, but it's something that you can ask them during practice, you know, where do you want the ball? And I've done that in the past. And I usually do that as an intro to one of the first things that we do. And it's, it's usually not where they think that they're actually hitting the pitch. Cause a lot of guys will point they're like, they, or they'll say, Hey, I want the ball in. I'm like, no, 
you really don't because most most amateur guys are just going to hook that over the dugout or they're going to get jammed. And so just getting them to understand, you know, their relationship to the plate and where they need to be standing in the box and what they're actually hitting well and in any way that we can do that to measure that and turn it into a competition. And whenever you talk about different zones, you know, you hear this a lot on amateur fields of one pitch, you know, or or it's a 3-1 and you're like, get the perfect one. And I kind of tend to lean to be completely opposite of that. I'm like, just get something you can drive and see it, you know? Mm-hmm. And instead of it being like a really short two or three ball zone, just something in that area that is hittable and hit it hard somewhere. I, I'm sure you see that a lot as well as, as kids are afraid to swing at a at a pitch that's in the zone because it's not their quote unquote perfect pitch. And uh, do you see that as well? Yeah, 100 percent. I tend to tell players to either seek speed or, or look speed or look for a, a location. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I've had players that we're looking for, like you said, a type of pitch in a specific location. And if they're looking for a fastball middle in and 80% of pitches thrown are going to be fastballs low and away, or at least 80% of pitches called, then they're going to be sitting with the bat on their shoulders Mm -hmm. and getting behind in a lot of counts. So, you know, I, I used to really kind of tighten up, zones on players and tell them to look for specific things in specific spots. Now I really just, if you get a fastball, drive it mm-hmm. and we practice on working on, you know, launching, we get the bad, it gets a bad rap, but you know, launching will basically just a measurement of how the ball comes off the bat, the height of the ball coming off the bat. And we train our players that on down and away pitches, you should still be able to hit that ball over the head of the infielder. And if you practice doing that enough, you can be very successful as a baseball player, especially at the amateur level, learning to drive a low and away pitch. It may not be the best pitch for you to hit all of the time. I understand that. But if you can still do damage on that pitch, you can be very successful at the amateur level. Definitely, definitely. Well, I've got a couple of lightning style questions. And I again, I appreciate you coming on, especially on your daughter's birthday. I'm sure that you've got about a thousand girls running around and screaming in your house. <laughs> And we haven't we haven't gotten to hear them yet, so I'm I'm assuming that we are uh, the clock is ticking. But what is what is one thing that you've learned lately that's gotten you really excited, either just about your own learning or just about the game of baseball? You know, being on base, you certified a couple weeks back, so I can assess the movement capabilities of the hitter. For me, is is really exciting. I don't know how long as a coach I've been telling players to move like X when that player may not or probably was unable to move in the way that I was asking them to move. So that's a huge deficiency as a coach on my part that I wasn't more aware of how mobility or stability affects movement so that I could prescribe, you know, kind of a better solution to fix their problem. So I'm super excited about that and Mm -hmm. and infusing that in my training going forward. For sure. What is something that you guys do in training that your kids love? I mean, I, so I love to throw wiffle ball and have wiffle ball games with guys. I think that's the, one of the most exciting things that a player can do. The competition level increases when they start competing amongst teammates. So I, I think that's probably the number one thing. Usually would add, it, like, played a great game, won a tournament. We play wiffle ball for the last, like, say, 30 minutes of our hitting practice. We usually practice for two hours. So, you know, about a quarter of the time, just letting them 
kind of remember why they started playing the game. Sometimes practice can be so formulaic and so regimented and it's not fun sometimes. So throwing wiffle ball and just letting the kind of the kids, you know, let their hair out and have some fun is, is really critical. I think every once in a while to keeping them engaged and, and having fun. I'm right there with you. I like that. What is something that you believe that other coaches may disagree with you about? I feel like finding a feel you trust in competition is probably more important than rehearsing a perfect swing movement. So I think if you look at baseball players like professionals, you see them like practicing all kinds of weird swings. And I used to, as a coach, say, man, that doesn't look anything like this game swing. Why did they do that? <laughs> 100%, right? But there's, I remember being in Baltimore and I was filming all the on-deck hitters. It was Orioles Rays. And there were so many swings that don't look like good movement, but they gave that player a specific feel that they were chasing. And I think if we take that cue from pros, chase a feeling that helps you perform in competition, I think that is more important than chasing a perfect swing movement you've been working on prior to game time. I like that. And we've actually, I've started to notice what our guys are and this past season and just, uh, it was my first year. So getting to see their on deck feels, it also reads into why part of their swing is not as good as you want it to be. So that's something to, to take notice of too, because let's say you get three at bats a game and you get five to 10 on deck swings per at bat if you want to. I mean, I'm assuming that, that you can get very, that multiple. I mean, that's ingraining different patterns that we're wanting to see. So I think that that is a, it's also a time that you can improve some different things too. If you give them some good feels, they're going to get more comfortable and more comfortable as the season goes on. And, and that's something that I've been looking into as well is just making sure the feel matches what, not only what they're feeling, their on deck stuff matches what they're feeling, but also what we're trying to ingrain as far as better patterns go too. Yeah. Preview at bats, I think are critical being in the on deck circle and feeling how your swing would react to the pitch you just saw. I think is great. I love players when they exaggerate a feel to change their movements at a high school player messaged me last week saying that he felt like he was, he was on top of everything. He's sitting too many ground balls. And his quote was, I was practicing most hundred degree pop-up swing on deck that I could. And he hit a double to the track at his next at bat. So it was him exaggerating a movement. He knows that that's not what we're chasing in game, but it gave him a feel that he needed. And he kind of met the real swing in the middle between the two patterns and, and found a good one. So Sure, sure. Okay, next question. If we came to one of your training sessions, what would be three things that would stand out or just three things that we would notice immediately? So I think that, well, I think first thing you would notice is that we're, we're pretty, it's pretty loud and loose when we're doing training. So I, I, I hope that I encourage our guys to, you know, have as much fun in training as possible. I felt like you know, when I watched a lot of training programs that were really so systematic, it was T work for 10 minutes and, you know, some underhand toss for 10 minutes and then BP for 10 and it didn't engage players. It didn't allow them to kind of have, have fun and be loose. So we're really loud and loose when we train. I think that you'd see, we use a lot of stuff. So, you know, at the training facility, we've got med balls, and rebels racks and PVC pipes and fans and weighted bats and hitting plyo balls and wiffle ball machines and, uh, you know, hit tracks. And, and so we're, we're using as many tools as possible to keep the players engaged and excited about coming in to work every day. 
And then I'm not afraid to send players home frustrated. So I think that you'd notice at the end of the day, some guys would be leaving upset. And I think that's a good thing. As long as we frame it correctly with our players, that it's not about making them feel good. Uh, Practice too easy. You're not learning. So I think at the end of the day, when it's supposed to get hard, players should embrace it. And so I I think that's what you'd see. I love it. And I think that obviously training and practice is where, is where the growth happens. And I, for your, Guys that are unfamiliar with that, I think it's also a conversation that we need to have with our players too because I'm sure that the kids that you have will understand that there are times that they will be frustrated and they will be upset because they're not they're not being 100% successful in practice. And you could do that if you wanted to and send them home after doing flips, but they're not getting any better. Or you can, yep. you can help them to understand different movements with adjustability and better decision-making and they're going to be frustrated. But I think that that's an opening conversation, and I know that that's something that, that I've had with, with our guys of guys, just regular BP from 40 feet is not optimal for a daily practice getting ready for some of the 90-plus guys that we're going to be seeing this year. So this is why. This is what they understand and, and take it on as a challenge rather than a we're trying to beat you over the head with with what we're what we're trying to do. But I really like that, and I think that you grow through times like that and you obviously we stretch in those moments and uh, last question so if you could share with us your favorite books or resources that have shaped your coaching career i think one of my favorite reads was the talent code and i think for a lot of different reasons reinforces that you know some of the best hotbeds for developing players are not in the most affluent places in the world so some of the examples given in the book are are enlightening and it gives you some of the best practices of the best coaches in all different types of sports and activities. The Science of Hitting by Ted Williams is a classic, still very relevant, and one of the best books written. I think it was written in the 60s or 70s. So it's just a great book and resource, I think, for coaches. It's like the, it's like the Bible for hitting. And I think there's some exciting books that are coming or out now, but I think that's one to go back to. And then I think one that uh, that I really liked that I was exposed to, you know, most recently is is Start with Why by Simon Sinek. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. And that's all about you have to figure out what you believe, and then you have to work with people that believe what you believe. And so I think that makes you ask a lot of questions: What do you believe? Why do you believe that is so? And then how do you get people to believe in that or bring them with you? in a responsible way. So I really think that book has been enlightening for me personally and professionally. Definitely. That's, that's a couple of great reads and Jeff, I, I really appreciate your time today. I really appreciate you carving out a little bit on an important day in your life to share with us so many different things that you have. But if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, just about anything that we talked about today, I know we talked about a lot of different ways to train the, the, the player and the person themselves. Uh, what would be the best way to get in touch with you if they had any questions? On social, you can find me on Twitter at Coach Jeff Leach, L-E-A-C-H. You can email me as well, Jeff at Axbat.com. I'd love to talk to you if you're a coach on whatever you're interested in, uh, whether it be training, coaching, products, Axbat, and how we can help your your program. Love to have those conversations. So, you know, feel free to reach out. 
Well, I love it. Well, I'm just going to open up the mic for you and just ask, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? I think this right now, summertime is the best time to get in your training. So, you know, we're very fortunate and excited to work with you, Jonathan, and Ahead of the Curve. So I believe we've got a discount on training bats. Our new long trainer, which is a 37-inch, 37-ounce training bat, it's a beast. We just released that bat. It's on back order, but I think you guys will love it. I think you guys should go pick it up. I think you guys should take advantage of the coupon code and go grab that. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.